Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. Tonight, we're welcoming Dr. Jack Hunter. He's an anthropologist exploring the borderlands of ecology, religion, and the paranormal. He lives in the hills of Wales with his family. He's an honorary research fellow with the Alistair Hardy Religious Experience Research Center, University of Wales, Trinity St. David, and a research fellow with the Parapsychology Foundation, New York. He is the founder of Paraanthropology, a journal of anthropological approaches to the paranormal. He's written the book Spirits, Gods, and Magic, an introduction to the anthropology of the supernatural and engaging the anomalous, manif- the anomalous and manifesting spirits, an anthropological study of mediumship and the paranormal. He's the editor of Strange Dimensions, a paraanthropology analogy. Anthology, oh my God. <laughs> Damned Facts, 40 and Essays on Religion, Folklore, and Paranormal, Greening the Paranormal, Exploring the Ecology of Extraordinary Experience, and is co-editor with Dr. David Luke of Talking with the Spirits, Ethnographies from Between the Worlds. Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's good to hear from you. I've been reading your, your stuff and for a while, and in fact, you were the first guest that my husband suggested that we should have on the show um my, my, yeah he was like there's this guy his name's dr jack hunter and he's really really cool and i had been reading your stuff i'm like yeah he is he's like oh you've heard about him and i'm like yes i have he's like well you should have him on the show and i said okay <laughs> well, well it's lovely to be here it's good to have you um do you want to start out morgana sure um I started reading your Manifesting Spirits, and I quite liked it, Um, and I was wondering how you came to the premise that you were going to go with ontological flooding and view this as a much more complex and interconnected phenomena than just going with one solution. Yeah. Okay, well, um, the, the idea of ontological flooding really... I'll explain what that is first, and then I'll explain how I got there. The idea is that we, you know, when we're engaging with things like mediumship or religion or spirituality and things like that, and there's been a tendency in, you know, in academia especially, to focus on things like beliefs and and things like that, ideas, and not to ask whether these beliefs have actually got anything that is going on, you know, behind them that gives them, you know, their kind of substance in a way. So the tendency has been to think about things like that from this detached perspective, you know, where we're saying the paranormal, religion, spirituality is all beliefs, and that's fine because, you know, beliefs are not necessarily true and all that kind of thing. But we're not interested in what's really going on or whether there even is something like, you know, the paranormal or God or, what, you know, whatever behind all of that. So that's the standard approach in sociology, for example, to study, you know, the social reality of religion rather than asking the question of whether actually there is a God or not. You know, and that's generally thought to be the domain of theology and that kind of thing. So when I started to look at spirit mediumship, you know, what I found was that the the majority of, you know, anthropological writings about things like mediumship were coming from that sociological angle. You know, from the from the idea that spirit possession and spirit mediumship were basically just a, a complex system of beliefs, and because it was just beliefs, it's not a real phenomenon. You know, that's that's the kind of angle that they were taking. But when I started to, um, you know, really read around it, read lots of anthropological accounts, I started to see that there were different, um, lots of different kinds of explanations uh, for spirit possession beliefs. 
Okay, so the idea is then, you know, there's this idea that spirit possession is a system of beliefs. And then lots of anthropologists have come along with their different ideas about how those systems of belief emerged. And they've all, I think, touched on good points. You know, so some of them have talked about um, spirit possession beliefs emerging because, you know, in in um, in societies where people are not able to express themselves, they're like women specifically, then spirit possession provides a means for them to express themselves in a socially acceptable way because it's saying that, you know, the person is being possessed by a spirit, so it's not them anymore, and they can do all sorts of weird stuff. Weird stuff. Um, so that that's called the social protest theory, and it's a very popular anthropological theory of spirit possession. And you can see how that makes perfect sense. And it fits to, like, you know, when you look at the 19th century spiritualist movement and how that began, you know, and young women, you know, using mediumship as a platform to express themselves and all that kind of stuff. Fair enough. But then there's another side of things again. So there's the, you know, there's the issue of like, you know, what actually is the nature of these experiences that people are having? And, you know, how do these experiences fit into all of this other kind of, you know, other kinds of religious systems and cultural systems and all that kind of stuff? So automatically you see that this one dominant explanation which is saying that it's all just it all just performs a social function for social protest. You know, it's taken as the, the the standard view, but actually, when you look at the real ethnographic situation, you know, in the real world, there's much more going on than that. <laughs> okay, so then there's other anthropologists who come along and say, well, spirit possession is all about, um, you know, it's a cognitive phenomenon. It's all about the way that people think about the world and process information and all of that kind of stuff, and it's to do with like. Um, you know, cognitive uh, dissonance kind of things, you know, where you have, uh, you ex- experience something, but you don't have the cognitive frameworks to, to put it in. So it ends up in, a, in the wrong category. And that ends up as like a paranormal experience. And it's a crazy idea. <laughs> but it's another one, it's another one of those, you know, dominant theories, that it's really just a cognitive error. Okay, and but you can see something in that as well. Like, yes, the brain probably does make mistakes. But that's not the be all and end all of the thing. So obviously there's also the social functions that it performs and then there's the experiences that we talked about. And then what I wanted to do then was bring in, you know, parapsychology because there's a whole field of research that's been going for 150-odd years, Mm -hmm. specifically Mm -hmm. investigating mediumship, not in terms of social beliefs or anything like that, but in terms of an actual phenomenon, you know, something that can be objectively observed and measured. So it's like, well, well, let's bring in some of this. And this is what I mean by ontological flooding then, is you're saying that, you know, those guys, those social anthropologists who say it's all about social protest, they're onto something, but it's not the whole picture. You've got to add that into, you know, the experiential phenomenological side of things as well. And then you've got to add that into the cognitive side, because obviously humans are thinking and processing information all the way through these kinds of events. Um, so, yeah, that's what I mean by ontological flooding, is that not in, no single theory... Um, that's been put forward to explain mediumship particularly, but any other kinds of uh, paranormal things really, is sufficient in itself to explain the totality of it. But actually when we start to bring together lots of different perspectives and flood our, you know, flood our, our thinking brains with lots of simultaneous theories, then we start to come up with a picture of mediumship as something that is much more complex and it has multiple interacting uh, processes going on within it so I hope that answers the question it does, it does. Where, I, where I went with it it does it 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 rather parallels the um, ideas that are becoming more prevalent in studying the paranormal which is that there's no one explanation for any given single paranormal phenomena mm-hmm. um, and that they may or may not all be linked together or they may be partially linked or not completely linked or, you know, there's so many different aspects to it that you can't just pick one piece out and go, well, this one explanation explains ghosts. You can't take the ghosts out and go, okay, this right here, that explains it. And it just doesn't work. It, it you you it it'll it'll fall apart pretty much as soon as you say that. Yeah, 
another good example is the you know the the tendency to look for like neurophysiological explanations for things like religious experience and you get these these papers every now and again that are published with like and they make it into the mainstream media and it's like you know the god spots being discovered in the brain and that solves it that's religion and the paranormal sorted because we understand that there's an area of the brain that lights up <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah, but actually yeah obviously yeah. the brain is involved but there's more going on as well you know beyond that of course the brain's going to be involved and of course it will light up in in strange ways during a paranormal experience but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the brain that's causing the experience for example so you exactly know, an ontologically flooded perspective basically takes all of these different theories into consideration and really just emphasizes the complexity of it and yeah. and it is extremely complex yeah. um i also really enjoy the idea of uh, spirit mediumship and talking with spirits not as a case of is it real in other words I say the question isn't, is it real? Are spirits real? Is mediumship real? My question is, is it useful? I think that's the more interesting question to ask. What yeah. does it fulfill? What need does it fulfill for humans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like um, William James who was talking about um, religious experiences in the 1900s. And he said that the only way that you could tell um, if an experience was genuinely, you know, religious or transformational or anything like that, was to judge it by the fruits of the experience. Yes. And what actually is the effect of the experience? Has it brought about a change in the person's character or whatever? I know if it has. Um, you know, he, he, William James talked about like um, like a philosophical. They they become people become more philosophical and all that kind of stuff, um, more ethically minded and that kind of thing. So, you know, if they have genuinely had some kind of a transformation like that, then it points towards the experience being, you know, more more likely to be a real experience or, you know, that it was certainly some kind of a profound experience, regardless of its underlying ontological status. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think that it's true. Looking at the effects of the experience is a, a useful way of going. Another thing that I noticed when I was doing my PhD research and it was kind of like a little aha moment for me was that, you know, this just goes to show how important the kinds of questions we're asking about the paranormal and these kinds of things are. So I started off my research asking why questions. <laughs> I, I was asking why, you know, why do people believe this kind of thing? Why do people believe in spirits? You know, it's obviously crazy. So, you know, why do they believe in it? Um, but the more that I, I delved into it, you know, you can actually answer that why question really easily. Uh, for me, what I found when I did my fieldwork in the Bristol Spirit Lodge was that the reason that people do it is because they have experiences. So I, I answered my why question really, really quickly and quite easily just by going to some seances. And, it, you know, it's clear to see that, you know, these people were having experiences, not necessarily saying that they're necessarily paranormal or anything, but they're definitely having experiences that they are, you know, looking at and interpreting and engaging with throughout this mediumship development process, uh, which was quite, which for me was, was interesting. Um, so I'd answered that why question, but then the real question became for me, how questions or so it became like, not why do people believe in spirits, but how then do people communicate with spirits or, you know, and what is the process of mediumship like that kind of thing? And I started to focus much less on this issue of, you know, why do people believe something so crazy uh, or so, so different and actually started to think, well, how, what are the processes involved in having these kinds of experiences? Um, and this, again, this feeds into that idea of ontological flooding that actually, when you start to think about these things as processes, it's not just a single process that's going on. No. <laughs> these experiences are like meeting points of lots and lots of different, uh, different yeah. things. Yeah, so. 
it's pretty uh it's a it's a different way of thinking about it i think and um it also moves away from the the question of having to find uh proofs all the time because you're not necessarily interested in uh demonstrating the reality of it but you're interested in the processes that are involved in it uh so it moves you into a kind of a different way of thinking about uh the paranormal i think you know it it moves like like ghost hunters and things like that it could move that that kind of research in a different direction I'm not trying to find objective empirical evidence of these things all the time but actually observing the social psychological physiological cultural uh, environmental processes that lead to paranormal experiences right yeah which i think is fascinating and is probably i don't want to say the correct approach because i don't think there is necessarily a wrong way to no. go about things but i think it is a again i don't want to say better i just to me this makes more sense is what i think is this sort of idea makes more sense when dealing with the paranormal because I've I've experienced strange things, and I, when you said why do people believe this, I said out loud, well, because we see strange things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've seen weird stuff. That's why I believe in it. It's very simple. Yeah. Um, but I I do think asking how is important because I don't know the answer to how, and I would really like to someday. I don't think I'm going to get the answer. But it would be yeah. great if somebody figured out some of it. Yeah, yeah. or just, uh, you know, just turning our attention to that that side of these things. You know, the, just think, <laughs> thinking about how these experiences come about rather than necessarily whether it's a real experience or not. Yeah. You know, often when you look at the process of the experience, then it tends to lend, <laughs> it tends to tip towards the, the reality side of things. From, from my perspective anyway, and um, especially with this idea of multiple in, multiple processes going on. Um, I suppose some, some people might you know, look at all of these things and tend in the complete opposite direction and see that, see that all of these other processes that are going on really explain the paranormal away. So, you know, saying that the brain is involved, for example, is very easy for someone to say then, well, it's all a product of the brain. <laughs> but that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying the brain is involved and other stuff as well well if the brain is involved then why doesn't everyone have these experiences why why do we have differently wired brains in some people what we, i i always get frustrated when as you say the 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 popular media particularly gets a hold of something and bam there's the answer it's, they found where God is in the brain. God's over there in that section of the brain. That lights up. There it is. Boom. There it is. The answer. And honestly, it drives me mad because it's like, no, that's not the answer. It's too complicated. The brain itself is too complicated, guys. You know, sometimes I think that journalists, and I used to be one, should, I don't know, maybe they they shouldn't report on things in a medium that requires a soundbite or a um, very short headline to sort of catch someone's attention because it, it never, I've, I can think of no instance where it actually conveys what's in the research paper yeah. <laughs> in a way that people will understand it and still convey what's in the actual research paper. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's the same with things like it's the same with things like mediumship, and you know, because there's a pop the popular idea, really, you know, or the mainstream accepted view is that it's all, you know, fraud, for example. But then, what happens if you go to a séance and there's no fraud at all? There might not be any kind of you know, um, amazing, like materializations or paranormal experiences in that seance but if there's no fraud then automatically there's obviously something more going on <laughs> you know that, that's bringing that that group of people together exactly so 
the popular idea is always to go for the simplest explanation. And that's actually the idea that science teaches, isn't it, with yes. Occam's razor? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to always head for the simplest, most parsimonious explanation when actually, you know, that might not be the the thing. That's not maybe that's not how the the universe or the multiverse or whatever operates. It's not simple ever. It's always complicated. And it's always interrelated as well, I think. I I do not know. (laughs) I try very hard to be like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, No, yeah. And this is, again, feeds in nicely to this other strand of my writing and research recently, which is the kind of the ecological angle and thinking about what an ecological perspective can bring to, you know, paranormal research and all that kind of stuff and you're you know exactly right that it it, it, you know when we look at this complexity what we find is an interconnected system and it's interconnected processes you know like a paranormal experience is like we were saying an interaction of physiological processes psychological processes you know the environmental things that are going on in the place the extra processes you know psi processes paranormal processes and all that kind of stuff all knotting together, like in the same way that, you know, ecosystems tend towards this kind of complexity. You know, when you have an ecosystem, when you have like a bare plot of land, it starts off just like with rock or something, and then you have a pioneer seed that breaks the rock up. And ecosystems tend then towards much more biodiversity because those pioneer species make it possible for you know, softer, more kind of less hardy plants to grow. And eventually you end up with like a rainforest. Nature seems to move towards complexity. It starts off simple and it becomes more complex. You know, it starts off with subatomic particles, but they they connect and they form much more complex things. So complexity seems to be the the point. Yeah. And a, a lot of um, analyses of thing of really complex experiences like paranormal experiences ignore that completely and just try to find the simplest explanation, either which is usually you know either that it is extraterrestrials or that it's uh, a weather balloon, <laughs> swamp gas, don't swamp forget gas, swamp yeah. gas. or that's, you that's know us Keelians, we're we're guilty of going well, it's all ultra terrestrials, <laughs> yeah. What's an ultra terrestrial? <laughs> well, that's beside the point. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about ultra terrestrials recently as well. I think that is a useful, a useful uh, term because uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, different forms of mind, different forms of consciousness that might be inhabiting the Earth, and um, you know, the ultra terrestrial idea. John Keel's idea is is that there are these, well, he talks about the super spectrum, doesn't he? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that these beings are just existing on sort of different frequencies, but they are essentially, you know, of the earth. So it's just interesting to think about how these other non-human earthlings, you know, fit into this ecological framework that I'm thinking about at the moment. And Pretty fun. They, they also... Um... Uh, there's a tendency in UFO contactees to be told things like you are hurting the planet, which is true. We are hurting the planet. And I wonder if that doesn't tie in with the ultra terrestrials or just earthlings on a different frequency Mm. because we're kind of trashing the place. (laughs) and I could totally see them being trying to get a message across of please stop doing this. This is, possibly injuring us and i i personally am more or less an animist and i'm of the opinion that we are humans are very much interconnected with our environments and it would not surprise me if our environment is not in some way trying to reach out and you know shake us a bit yeah 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 i've been thinking about this as well (laughs) it's one of the the strands in in the greening the paranormal idea is you know that 
that all sorts of um, extraordinary experiences seem to lead towards pro-environmental behavior. So there's lots of interesting research on uh, psychedelics and uh, pro-environmental behavior, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Near-death experiences, people who come back from near-death experiences often claim to have a a greater sense of connection to the cosmos and will engage in, you know, pro-environmental behaviors. Um, And like you said, you know, John Mack talked about um, alien abductees and he said that, that, you know, one of the chief messages that comes back from abduction experiences is that the earth is in crisis and that people need to do something about it. But I've been thinking about this because, you know, there's a lot of things that, again, it's not going to be a simple or easy kind of, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not as simple as saying paranormal experiences equals you're going to be more (laughs) environmentally friendly (laughs) Um, because that's not obviously not necessarily the case. And also I don't think it's as easy to say that, you know, like for abduction experiences in particular, which are very negative, frightening, terrifying experiences, it's hard to imagine, you know, that in those situations, you know, the greys or whoever are trying to transmit a positive message to (laughs) humanity by doing, you know, these horrible things to people and terrifying them. But what I think the issue is, is that when you get, say, if you get abducted, for example, (laughs) you're unfortunate enough to be abducted. But what happens is it's not that they're trying to make you into a greener individual or anything like that. But what it does is that it snaps you back into a real realization that you're part of a food chain or that you're part of an Mm. ecosystem. And there was um, a famous uh, feminist ecological philosopher called Val Plumwood. And she had this experience that made her, that basically was the root of her becoming involved in ecological activism and ecological ethics and that kind of stuff. And it was the experience of being attacked by an alligator or a crocodile. And, you know, she realized, you know, she was in the jaws of the the crocodile and it was like a serious life or death kind of situation. Um, But when she came out of this experience, you know, highly traumatic experience, she had this much deeper sense of connection to the, ecosystems you know of the earth you know she'd been she realized that she was also a part of the food chain (laughs) and i think that this idea can also be applied to you know not necessarily all paranormal experiences because some of them do seem to be from an intelligence that is deliberately trying to communicate a message but sometimes it might actually just it might be a side effect of that you know being snapped up by a a non-human force that shocks you into realizing that actually you're part of a bigger system and that you're not really necessarily as, you know, safe um, as you, as you like to think, you know, we we, we build this human world around us and we feel comfortable and safe within it. (laughs) But then when things come in from the outside and uh, shake that up, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, no, I'm not, I'm not in my human bubble. I'm actually on the planet. I'm in the um, part of the earth. (laughs) I better, Pay attention to it. So that's that, another way of thinking about it. Maybe that's actually a a, a good way to to express that um, because one of the I, I've been reading the biography of John Mack called The Believer by Ralph yeah. Blumenthal, mm. and uh, one of the things that's very clear is that people suddenly are shaken out of their uh, belief that humans are untouchable except by other humans um because when we live in big cities when we live in communities bears aren't chasing us around anymore like when we evolved you know or lions or crocodiles or alligators or sharks and uh i would say the predominant num you know the predominant large number of humans in the Western world don't experience the wilderness at all. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I can, I, there are people who've never been outside of cities really. Yeah. And uh, yeah, suddenly being snatched out of their bedroom at night 
and whisked away and, you know, having medical procedures done that they didn't ask for or consent to. Yeah. That that's almost like being grabbed by an alligator, you know, except they're, you know, yeah. not chewing people up, hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it, it's a thing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. And another um, strand in this as well is <clears throat> that, that I think really links the paranormal into the, the, the sort of the more the philosophical deep ecology kind of angle is this uh, idea of the ecological self. I wrote a little article about this uh, last year about parapsychology and ecological self and how, you know, actually parapsychologists have been, you know, researching what some people have called like the long body or, you know, the, the idea that the self actually can, you know, in, in all sorts of different psi phenomena extend beyond the confines of the brain, you know, and astral travel and out-of-body experiences and things like that. So what parapsychologists have been researching is a self that is not bounded by the limitations of the body, but a self that seems to be much more permeable. And, you know, with ideas of spirit possession, all that kind of stuff, the, there, are, there are external things that can also come into the self. You know, so the self isn't a solid membrane, it's actually a permeable membrane. And this is a very similar idea to um, what deep ecologists have called uh, the ecological self, which is when a person comes to uh, to us to um, associate the you know that basically they they make no distinction between the in inner world and outer world essentially, and they realise that the external environment is as much a part of the self as you know your internal world. And that if you destroy the external world, then you destroy yourself. You know, so the self and the external world are both the same thing. So it's quite interesting that, you know, parapsychology, which has come at thinking about the nature of the self by looking at paranormal phenomena, and deep ecology, which has come to think about the nature of the self by looking at nature, have kind of arrived at the same position, which is that the self is permeable and um, is as much is extending out into the world just as much as the world outside is extending into us in various different ways so this is really a cool <laughs> a cool yeah. little um crossover in these different fields but i think you know that the fact that they're converging on this image of the self which is also very similar to what anthropologists have called the non-western self so the in anthropology they talk about the western self as being bounded and individual and solid you know like so this is the extent of my body my skin whereas in non-western societies the self is often permeable or divisible it can be broken into lots of different parts or you know that it's not necessarily limited by this the skin so yeah anthropologists also have realized this that there is this also this other form of the self that is not bounded and I, I know I discovered it as well when I was doing my, you know, my PhD research because the mediums that I was talking to uh, were talking about, you know, spirit experiences. They were talking about things moving through their bodies. They were talking about going out of their bodies in trances and things like that. Their model of the self was much more similar to, you know, a non-Western model of the self than the standard Western model. So actually that just goes to show that this Western, non-Western division is meaningless because, <laughs> uh, you know, people have these different senses of self all over the world, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, people seek that even today in the Western world. Um, even just experiments with LSD. Yeah. And um, sometimes people experience it just spontaneously or by accident yeah. in mystical experiences or... They do. Yeah. And religious ecstasy, I think, is a form of it. Um, I, and I don't understand. I understand historically why religion and the paranormal have been separated. Yeah. But I don't understand why people still conceptualize of them as two separate things. No, because to me, they're very much... One is simply... One just has been around for longer and has buildings you go to and people don't argue with you if you say you're Catholic. Yeah. 
<laughs> Although people do argue more now. They're, they're atheists who get fussy. Um, yeah. Which is rude. <laughs> but it, people, I, I don't understand. Nobody walks up to religious people and says, prove me miracles. And religion is no longer expected to provide miracles all the time. Mm. But the paranormal is expected to do this and to yeah. stand up to scientific scrutiny, which historically that makes sense because even the word paranormal was created to separate it from religion. But I don't know. It, yeah. it confuses me. We humans like to make artificial divisions. We do. Oh, we do. We I've like got boxes. another an artificial division, but it, it helps to make sense of um, this religion paranormal thing. The way the way I think about it is that the re religion and the paranormal are essentially the same thing. I mean, even people like um, there's a theologian called Rudolf Otto, and he argued that. You know, the very essence of religion is the, the, the numinous experience, the mysterium tremendum and the mysterium uh, fascinance. These two, he talked about these two different strands of, of religious experience that are terrifying and but also beautiful at the same time. And a lot of paranormal experiences fall into that. Yes. So the, the way that I think about this is um, that actually religion is the domesticated paranormal. And uh, the paranormal, as we call about it, is the kind of untamed um, bit that kind of lingers <laughs> around the edges but never quite gets brought into um, a doctrine or a, a system of belief. Um, but actually, but essentially, that they, they kind of, they arise, they are the same thing. It's just that one has been given a nice, neat label and categorized as religion, you know, miracles and <laughs> whatever, and the other one is still a little bit more ambiguous and amorph amorphous on the, the kind of peripheral edge of it all. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that ritual creates domestic domestication yeah. of the paranormal? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so like, um, say, you know, you can, I can, let's just hypothetically <laughs> imagine a, a prehistoric situation <laughs> where some people have a paranormal experience spontaneous experience you know in the wilderness and then you know they spend ages they talk about it and they discuss it and they're like what we're we gonna do uh well maybe the next day they say or well, then maybe someone in the group you know like a shaman or someone who says well tomorrow we'll go and uh, we'll give an offering or we'll we'll do a little acknowledgement of its presence or something like that and then before long a ritual has you know formed you know this is what you do then for this this particular thing so i think yeah ritual is an important part of uh, that process of domestication of paranormal anomalous things and bringing it into a framework and it's a very human way of uh, you know m making sense of and structuring experience isn't it you make a, you build up a system around it of practices and beliefs and things, and that's what domesticates it. But until that point, it's still wild. And even after domestication, occasionally wild things will happen. Yes, definitely, because it's not truly domesticated. Exactly, we just yeah. think it is. Yeah, and that's <laughs> why like you have you know these miracles every now and again, or you know visions of the Virgin Mary or, you know, the wild side of religious experience that actually doesn't get commented on that much. I mean, another thing that I've, I've been writing about recently is um, high strangeness and religious experience. Yes. Yes. And you sent me that paper. Talk yeah, about that. I did. Yeah. It's, I love your, the, the boggle factor. <laughs> yeah. The boggle threshold is a cool yes. idea. So yeah, there, there are some, strands you know obviously there is a, a whole field an established field of research on religious experience and you know it's rooted in universities and academic departments and all that kind of stuff obviously it's still a little bit on the fringe because it's dealing with religious experiences and you'll have within that field you know people from different backgrounds some will be more kind of 
scientific others would be coming more from the humanities and all that kind of stuff but you know it's still it is an established field and there are core texts and things in the study of religious experience but you'll notice and this is something that i noticed when i was looking through the archives of the alistair hardy religious experience research center uh, which is i'm a, a research fellow with the research center uh, which is really good which is lovely um, and they have a collection of over 6,000 accounts of um, religious experiences that have been submitted in response to this question by a guy called Sir Alistair Hardy, who was a, he was a marine biologist um, to begin with, but he had always had this deep interest in religion. And he, he came up with this question, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's something like, you know, have you ever had an experience of something, whether you consider it God or not, that, you know, whatever it is that, moved you or something you can look it up <laughs> what the exact words are but um so he had you know he starts off with this idea but then he, he when he puts the question out to people they get all sorts of crazy responses in and all sorts of experiences that don't necessarily m mesh uh, or don't necessarily m fall into the kinds of categories that the established body of religious experience research you know likes so an example would be, uh, there's a study from 1977 uh, by a guy called Timothy Beardsworth, and he looked at the first 1,000 accounts in this archive, and he looked at specifically experiences of a sense of presence. And so in this book that he has, this you know study full of all sorts of crazy, extraordinary experiences of people sensing presences in bedrooms and, you know, or all the way up to like, you know, your full on like religious experiences with beings of light and whatever. Um, but when I was looking through the archives, I found this experience that was like more like a fairy experience. I went in there looking, I, took, I thought I'll put fortune goggles on and look at the religious experience archive and see what I found, I find. And I found this uh, account number, I think it was 254 or something. It's written down in the paper. And um, so obviously it would have been included within that first 1,000 accounts that Timothy Beardsworth analysed in the 70s. But for some reason, this particular experience has been left out of his account. And I think the reason is because it exceeds his boggle threshold. <laughs> uh, so this is the cool idea that this historian of um, psychical research called Renee Haynes came up with. And it was her way of trying to explain, you know, why is it that some some scientists will happily research psi and the paranormal and other, re other scientists will completely dismiss it. And she said that people have different thresholds. You know, there's a certain level to which they will go before they say, well, actually, this is too, this is too much for me. We won't go there. So what I think happened was with Timothy Beardsworth in this study was that, you know, he was reading through the first 1,000 accounts looking for senses of presence. But when he came across this particular account where the sense of presence was of three like green goblin-like creatures on the living room carpet <laughs> uh, in the middle of this weird little story that the, the experiencer was telling about someone coming to clean the carpets and then all the electrical equipment started to flicker on and off. And then she saw these three green creatures. It must have exceeded his boggle threshold. So even though it was a sense of presence, it had been submitted to the Religious Experience Research Center as a religious experience. You know, um, it has all of these other characteristics in it that align with other kinds of extraordinary experiences. Even despite all of that stuff, it gets neglected because it's too weird. <laughs> uh, and this exactly. happens a lot, uh, which is why I think academia needs to, you know, face up to high strangeness. <laughs> I think that's a, a great story. I, I love that. It, but even people who study high strangeness, there is a boggle you know, threshold. We, there, there are places where people don't want to go. Um, and paranormal Bigfoot is one of those places that yeah. for years and years and years, there's data that was left out because people said, well, I saw Bigfoot walk across the road. There he was. And he was walking across the road and then these weird lights followed him. And then, you know, the, somehow the walking across the road got written down but the weird lights following him kind of yeah. was like, oh, I don't know, we're not going to, but, you know, because people are very competent witnesses when they see what you want to 
gather the information that you want to gather when they see that they're very competent and then they see extra stuff like weird little lights then they're like oh well no clearly they rubbed their eyes they looked into a headlight something happened i don't know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I now i can just say well the boggle threshold was met and exceeded and that's why yeah. we can't have little lights following bigfoot that's around why we, we can't talk can. about that nope not going <laughs> to talk about it yeah but i think we should talk about it because i this you know this high strangeness factor it was the idea was put forward by you know alan hynek way back you know looking at all those old ufo reports but i think you know it was a scientific term it was mm -hmm. used by hynek as a scientist to categorize and make sense of experiences and, you know, he came up with his strangeness rating. So you could have a low strangeness experience, which would be just like seeing a light in the sky, all the way up to a high strangeness experience, which exactly encapsulates what I've been trying to say about multiple processes going on. Because he says in a high strangeness experience, you have all of these di various different things going on, each of which kind of baffles you. You know, none, mm -hmm. nothing makes sense in a high strangeness experience. Um and, but I think that's actually a feature of, you know, like we were saying, right across the board, paranormal experiences. What makes a paranormal experience paranormal is its strangeness, its high strangeness. What makes a religious experience a religious experience is its high strangeness. Yes. So, you know, it's the high strangeness is actually probably the, the kind of the key, but it's not an easy key. <laughs> no. It's no. a very complicated key. Yeah, I liked that you quoted Mike Cleland in yeah. that paper. Um, he's the UFO uh, researcher who has had weird experiences with owls, just yeah. for uh, listeners who haven't read his books. You should, and I will put his books in the show notes. But yeah. he has UFO experiences, and then he has owl experiences. And a lot of the owls are probably just natural owls, but why are they following him around? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is, you know, because I've had people go, oh, he just sees owls. He's attuned to them, so he sees them. I'm like, yeah, but owls don't just follow people around normally. No. That's it. It's, you know, that's that's not normal. You know, And I think a lot of high strangeness people just in addition to having the the boggle threshold i think they also sort of have a blind spot sometimes where their brain just sees that and keeps going it just sort of it's like a speed bump that they don't slow down for they just they just speed up and go over it and keep going they yeah. they it doesn't some people's brains just don't like that i on the other hand go why are there owls following this man around i want to know <laughs> Yeah. That's not normal owl behavior. <laughs> exactly. And that was the thing that I liked about what Mike Cleland said about um, high strangeness is right at the very beginning of his book. Mm -hmm. And he's saying that, you know, when you get someone who comes up to you with an experience that has lots of different factors going on in it, so that it's more likely to be, you know, a genuine experience. Yes. It, you know, rather than being a simple straight up, like I saw a light in the sky or anything like that. I mean, it could be a genuine experience could not be but when all of these different strands start to come together and they're saying you know that i there's owls following me around and <laughs> that i saw little green men in my living room and um when i go to sleep at night I have a recurring dream about the earth <laughs> you know when you get all of these factors coming together it's so it's like everything's pointing towards a genuine phenomenal something to be taken seriously and i thought yeah. that was a nice way of thinking about it because actually that's the opposite to how academic religious experience research has operated. <laughs> the tendency is to be to look for the simplest experiences <laughs> that you can nicely, nice and easily categorize and to ignore the most complicated ones, um, yeah. Yeah, which is not a good, good way to go. I think the theory there is the simpler ones you're more likely to be able to explain. Yeah. And that's more comforting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because Let's... it's, it, I have odd things happen and it can be very uncomfortable. 
after a certain point. Yeah. It's it, you get used to it in a way, but it would be so nice if you could just explain it because then you don't have to worry about it. You can excuse things that happen. You can go, well, it's this is the rational explanation. Mm. Like, my boyfriend doesn't believe in anything. And so I'll tell him something. And he's like, honey, that didn't happen. And that's how he just glosses over it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is totally fair. I wouldn't want to think about it if I didn't have to think about it. No. That's it. But if you're if it opens up to you in your experience, then... You have to you think have about to it. Deal with it somewhere. You have to ha- you have to build up some kind of a framework to make sense of it, and that's one of the other things I noticed from my PhD research with the mediums was that this is exactly the kind of function that a, a mediumship or a séance group performs. You know, one of the many functions that a mediumship group performs is that you know people. Some of the mediums that I spoke to would say things like they'd had strange experiences growing up unusual sensations or when they went into certain houses they would feel like there was people moving through their bodies and all all sorts of things or that they would you know they might spontaneously have out-of-body experiences and stuff but then what they do is they seek out groups where they can go to uh, develop these things and again it's part of this domestication process so what starts Mm -hmm. off as these um, strange and actually quite distressing experiences for someone Uh, when they find a mediumship development group or something like that, then it gives them a structure and a place uh, to go to in order to have those experiences and to kind of explore them in a safe environment. So again, you know, the standard explanation or the standard perspective on a a seance group is, is to debunk it or to say that it's all fraud or something like that. But then very easily you can look at it and say, well, actually, you know, there's a, a therapeutic process going on here as well. <laughs> it's not, it's much more than just, you know, our spirits real or not. Um, it's also a social, you know, gathering and it's, uh, you know, all of these different kinds of things. It helps people to domesticate experiences. It helps them to make, to explore their own psychology, their own consciousness, um, you know, all, all good stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 I also, um, speaking of, of mediums and spiritualist circles, hmm. I am, con- I, I, mm, confused is the wrong word. I noticed that physical mediumship is somewhat, not quite looked down upon, but looked at as more likely to be fraudulent, which historically I understand that there were some, there were several fraudulent physical mediums, but it's not practiced nearly as much today. And I'm wondering if one, because society questions it more strenuously or doesn't allow for its existence more frequently, if that has impacted the likelihood of, that type of mediumship occurring and two if it is if if it is beneficial to people to engage in it or if it's something that you just can't control and happens to you anyway and hopefully it's beneficial and nobody's mean to you <laughs> i'm fra- i'm phrasing this very badly <laughs> Okay. I'm so sorry. Okay. I had notes on that, but it was my notes, so half of that was unreadable. The first, uh, the first part of the question about um, the cultural vibe and the impact of that on physical mediumship, I think, is a really interesting one because I've actually thought about um, physical mediumship. You know, it emerged in the 19th century. Um, it started off 1848, so right in the middle of the 19th century. And it emerges into a world that is um, rapidly transforming, you know, with new technologies, uh, new media, telegraph, you know, communication, and into the, ni- into the 20th century. And it, 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 you know, we, well, we know where it ends up <laughs> with this. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of interesting things about that particular time. So there was this, you know, the, lots of historians have talked about like a crisis of faith in the 19th century. 
because science was challenging the established models of um, you know religion and all the old certainties were you know collapsing and you know people were atheism was on the rise and all of this kind of stuff so a lot of people have talked about this crisis of faith in the in the 19th century and i think that uh, physical mediumship is a real um manifestation of that because you know especially with the idea of ectoplasm which is kind of like a it's kind of like the, the holy grail of physical mediumship to produce ectoplasm which is this like semi-physical substance um that's you know spirits use to make physical bodies with I and mean, we know it from ghostbusters as like a green slime but in the in the real world ectoplasm is usually kind of like a white viscous sometimes it's like a fluid sometimes it's like a smoke and sometimes it's like a kind of muslin or a gauze kind of thing you know obviously take it all with a pinch of salt but also look at the parallels and the the bigger picture as well which is very interesting and what ectoplasm for me seems to resent or represent is kind of like a cultural product it's like something that was needed at that time to bridge the gap between um well spiritual and scientific because ectoplasm is that halfway substance it's perfect mm-hmm. you know if you if you're in a world of science but you want to cling on to spirituality it's perfect to have a substance that you could capture and measure and record in the lab that is also spiritual so i think in some ways ectoplasm and physical mediumship was actually a product of 19th century cultural needs um and but you know they changed you know when pe- when frauds and all of that kind of stuff started to be made public obviously that challenged the whole thing and uh, the reputation of it uh basically declined and it didn't really build up again until the 2000s um but there has been a renewed interest in physical mediumship but obviously there's a much greater amount of skepticism about it mm-hmm. and you know even Arthur Conan Doyle in the 1920s was commenting on the same thing that you know if he looked back at the early spiritualists in the you know the 1800s the physical phenomena that they were producing were so so much of much a such a bigger magnitude than what he was observing in the 1920s and he 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 said the exactly the same thing that it was the atmosphere of love and you know all of that kind of stuff that, that they were surrounded with in the early days that was missing in the 1920s and then we look at the phenomena today and there's nowhere near as much going on although there are some yeah. mediums who are trying to you know produce 19th century style uh, materializations but you know it's interesting again it just goes to show that you could think about séances and mediumship and all of this paranormal stuff from so many different angles and it can elucidate you know issues to do with science and religion in 19th 19th and 20th century and all that kind of stuff it's not just a marginal you know fringe thing actually the paranormal and is a fully like wedded into all of western culture and academia and all of that kind of stuff it's pretty cool <laughs> well you know if you think about when spiritualism began it was in the middle part of the 19th century in america it was in the 1840s we had the industrial revolution starting the industrial revolution changed western society it it was i i see it as kind of traumatic in england Um, it was a little less traumatic here, but it was still plenty traumatic having people go from a rural existence into a city to work in factories. That was a, a big shakeup. Um, and then in the United States in the 1860s, of course, we had slavery and we had the Civil War. This again, this is a big traumatic event. And it sort of created a perfect storm for spiritualism. And then it continues on until we have World War I, which was horrible, particularly in England. Um, You lost almost an entire generation of young men. And then there was the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. So people wanted to believe 
very, very strongly. They wanted to be able to contact their beloved dead. They wanted to, to talk to their loved ones. They wanted to believe. And uh, the conventional religions were not providing for those desires and needs. And I think in what Conan Doyle is saying when he says there wasn't the love that there was in the 19th century, I think it isn't just love, it's belief. Mm -hmm. It is, I almost want to say it is the power of belief. And that may be why the, there was more of the physical uh, aspects of spiritualism at that time because there was such strong belief. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, it's just, I think it's a, it's an, it's a part of it that, that needs, to, again, another part of the processes of all of this that really needs to be taken into consideration is the, you know, the historical, the cultural context of any kind of, you know, any kind of paranormal event or experience, you know, they don't, they don't occur in a vacuum. Um, they are, you know, they happen into the world, don't they? Which already has things going on. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're definitely, I think that's one of the, you know, this is the, the issue with treating the complexity of it. You know, it's just realizing that actually this, the paranormal is, is part of the world fully um, enmeshed within it. Also, wasn't that a time period where, radio and wireless was all suddenly happening and it was like an age of scientific marvel yeah oh, and i could 1920s I could, yeah. yeah and i could see i could see people being suddenly very open-minded and being like if all of this is possible if we can send voices halfway around the world is it so difficult to believe that we can bring voices from the afterlife and a lot of the people who were sorry, a lot of pe people who were involved in the, you know, the the technology of radio, uh, were also involved in spiritualism. So you know, Marconi uh, yep. was interested in spirit contact through radio. Oliver Lodge, you know, president of the Society for Psychical Research. You know, if we didn't have him, we wouldn't have you know TVs and stuff. The same goes for William Crooks, actually, another president mm -hmm. of the SPR, who was you know a pioneering chemist and. Um, yeah, all of this stuff. You should really check out the work of Andreas Sommer. He is a historian. He does the Forbidden Histories blog, um, but all about the kind of, you know, the history of parapsychology and psychical research in relation to, you know, the history of science. Very cool stuff. And even Tesla had visions. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this idea that the spiritual or the religious and the, the paranormal and that kind of thing and the scientific are, are two completely separate domains that can't uh, coexist is, uh, you know, demonstrated to be false by the, the reality of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's also the, the, um, the, the ideas that people get inspiration from unknown sources or places, not just in the arts, but also in the sciences. Yeah, definitely. All sorts you know, of uh, scientific discoveries from, you know, mystical reveries and psychedelic states and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing to think about, you know, but again, it's put, puts people, human beings into the world, you know, that our, our ideas and things, you know, come from all of these various processes that are going on, scientific discoveries, you know, again, they don't occur in a vacuum. <laughs> and they, they might well be influenced by paranormal experiences and mystical visions and things like that. Science isn't uh, like a, it's not like hermetically sealed. <laughs> it's no. part of the, all of this complexity of the world. How common do you think communications from the other are and I'm, I'm going to use Tim Renner's word for the paranormal which I like because I like it's it's just the other mm. it's yeah. not specific so you're not leaving anything out <laughs> I like it I like uh, also like um, 
Rudolf Otto, when he, you know, we talked about the numinous before, but he said that the numinous was the wholly other, you know, yes, utterly, yeah. utterly other. But yeah, I think um, it's actually probably, well, it's more common than people talk about. Because as we know, as we've already discussed, there are lots of taboos about these kinds of things. And people don't like to talk about the fact that they've had certain kinds of experiences um, because they don't want to be labelled or perceived in a certain way. But obviously, you know, the, the rate at which people are having these kinds of experiences is, ob- is going to be much greater than the reported um, instances oh, yeah. of it. So I think on that front, people are having more a lot of, you know, these experiences are, are relatively frequent. But also I think that people may be having have encounters with the other that they don't recognize. So, you know, we were talking about Mike Cleland and the owls before, you know, and these are real everyday owls, but an interaction with a real everyday owl is still an interaction with the other. There's a good Mm -hmm. chapter in um, Greening the Paranormal about a guy who has these animistic relationships with kingfishers. Um, So, you know, Cleland has owls and this guy has kingfishers that come and um, sort of, tell him about um you know deaths and things that are coming up um so this is is an interesting thing isn't there then that we can have experiences that seem like everyday normal experiences or interactions with animals and things like that but that also might be communications with um you know the spiritual the spiritual world um where do we draw a line between you know a spirit and an animal, for example. I, I don't draw a line <laughs> for me personally yeah. anymore. That actually, when we have an interaction with an animal, or when we have an interaction with another human being, or we are having a spirit interaction. <laughs> and that's a wrap up, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're sorry Thank we you. kept you a little no, long. Okay. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. That's okay. And have have a good evening. Thanks for having me. Bye. 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 Bye, sweetie. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.